If you would please open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Sometimes wonder if we're going to be studying the book of Deuteronomy for three or four years. We're in chapter 5, verse 17. Remember when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, what did He say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He summarized the Ten Commandments with two. The first table, the first four commandments, He summarizes with the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second table, commandments 5-10, through He summarizes by loving your neighbor as yourself. We all, I think, understand this at this point. But notice that Jesus takes the opportunity when asked to affirm the commandments. He doesn't soften them. He doesn't soften the blow of the commandments. He affirms the Ten Commandments as evidenced in the Sermon on the Mount. This implies for us, for the Christian, a complete sacrifice of self to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's living for God, loving God with all that you are and a desire to serve God and serve others more than yourself. If this were purely executed in your life, it would be impossible to break a command, wouldn't it? So those who think that this is somehow a relaxation of the commandments, that Jesus is just softening the standards for God's New Testament people, they fail to see, really, that this is a more invasive application of the commandments. He's explaining the commandments as they should have been understood. Initially, he's calling his people to love, which means obedience. And it's obedience with a purpose. It's to glorify God. It produces holiness in us. So in the preference, the preface to the Ten Commandments, before he gives any of the commandments, remember he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So we see in this preface three reasons why we ought to obey. First, I am the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is God. We obey because God is commanding us. We obey also because He's brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We obey also because He's our Redeemer. He's brought us out of slavery. But notice this. I am the Lord, your God. We obey because He's adopted us in love. He's brought us into His family. So for these three reasons, and many more I'm sure, we obey the commandments because we love our God. We obey our God because He is our God, and we obey God out of a covenant love because He has covenanted with us and adopted us. So in this light, we look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17, the sixth commandment. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired Word? You shall not murder. Please be seated. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank You for Your Word. And even in these two Hebrew words, translated, You shall not murder, You impart such amazing truth to our souls. We pray that You would help us to understand this command. Help us to see it in light of all Your redemptive mercies. And help us to know the truth of Jesus Christ that transforms our lives. 
Be glorified, we pray. Lord Jesus, be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at the sixth commandment. The commandment that we should not murder. The sixth commandment's moral principle is to preserve life. So we're going to look at the text first. We're going to look at what it means to preserve life. We're going to look at what it means to preserve life in thought, word, and deed. What it means to do good to our neighbor, which is the other edge of the sword of not murdering. And then I'm going to take a moment to talk about some modern applications of this particular command. Remember that real love for God will always be seen in a love for each other. Always. We see this in 1 John 5.2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. You see, if you love God, you're going to obey His commandments. If you love God, you're going to love others. There's no distinction between the two as far as our obedience goes. So it's impossible to say you love God and hate your fellow man. It's impossible to say you love God and hate a brother. The first table of the law always produces obedience to the second table. They're connected. So the text reads, you shall not murder. And interestingly in the Hebrew, it's just two words. The word for no and the word for kill. No kill. That's the command. Well, it means more than kill. Certainly we know from the rest of the Scripture. This is a second person singular command In other words, it's not y'all don't kill, it's you. You. It's a personal command. You don't kill. You don't murder. It's more than just killing, though. A more accurate translation would be no unjust killing. You don't kill unjustly. Murder, of course, is the most obvious uh, way to kill unjustly. And this is the basis, this, this, this image bearing, Um, we see as the basis of all of the second table, but especially the command not to murder. We know this from John, or sorry, Genesis chapter 9. This is Noah after he's come off the ark, and, and God is kind of resetting Noah in his family. He's saying, Remember, remember this. Certainly, he's probably given this same instruction to Adam, and then Adam's own son killed his brother. And now he's telling Noah, listen, Genesis 9.5, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. You see, we don't murder because we are made in the image of God. In fact, all that we do in the second table of the law is done in light of our image bearing. So what does you shall not murder actually imply based on the rest of the context of Scripture? Just a a few brief words. First of all, it encourages and demands justice. God commands that murderers be killed. So the command isn't, you shall not kill, because God is commanding that murderers be killed. You see that? So Genesis 4.10, remember when Cain killed Abel, what did God say to him? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. 
So an image bearer has just died. And his blood is crying out to me. And there must be justice. Numbers 35-31. God tells Moses that you shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer, which is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. In other words, he can't pay his way out of this. If he's a murderer, he needs to be put to death. So it means more than kill. It's, it's, it's murder. You shall not murder. And if you are a murderer, you will be killed. God's demanding justice. But it's also, uh, there's an exception in killing for self-defense. God makes allowance for defending your property and yourself. Again, you're an image bearer and you can defend yourself. We see this in Exodus 22.2. If a thief is found breaking in at night and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. In other words, someone breaks into your house at night, you're scared and you, you strike him. You're not a murderer. You're defending yourself. You're defending your family. So there's an exception for self-defense in this killing. The other kind of killing that's acceptable is a just war. Your land is attacked and you're defending your home. You're defending your country. This is seen throughout Scripture as well. So it's more than just don't kill. It's an unjust killing, namely murder. That's prohibited. But it's much, much more than that. Anything, Christ seems to say, anything that leads to murder is also breaking this command. And I believe He's exactly right, of course. When we look at this command, we're going to look at it through the same kind of five lenses as we did all the other commandments and will in the future. First, that the law is spiritual. It applies to all of man, to all of your soul. So there's, there's not just uh, an outward, external compliance. The command not to murder applies to all of you. The commands are all two-sided. This is the second principle. The, the command not to murder is also a command to love your neighbor. It goes both ways. It's double-edged. Thirdly, the Ten Commands express God's created order. In Genesis 1, is, is what Cain did to Abel not murder because we don't have the Ten Commandments yet? No, it was already written on his heart. And many believe that Adam was instructed in all the ways of righteousness and instructed his own children, although we don't know that from the Scriptures. The Ten Commandments show God's created order. Fourthly, specific commandments reveal broad principles for knowing and loving God. The moral principle is what we focus on, and then we expound out the Scriptures based on that, as Christ did Himself. And fifthly, the context for the commandments in our obedience is love. He owns us, so we obey Him, but He loves us, so we obey Him. And we love Him back. Let's look at the moral principle. This is the second point. The moral principle is to preserve our life and the lives of others. That's, that's the principle in this sixth commandment. And it's an important principle. And it's interesting to note, and it's important, I believe, to see that the commandments come in an, in a, in an order that's methodical. Christ is giving commands with a purpose. The very first command is the command. It's love God. Have no other gods before me. When we get to the second table, the table of man, we see commands 5 through 10 in a particular order. First, we preserve 
God-given authority in the fifth commandment. In the sixth commandment, we preserve human life. The seventh commandment, we preserve our family, our nearest kin, especially our wives and husbands. In the eighth commandment, we preserve our own property. The ninth commandment commands preserving our good name or preserving truth or justice, if you will. And the tenth commandment is preserving our hearts through coveting. So you see that the fifth commandment, the honoring of authority, is really foundational for applying all of the rest of them. If you're going to have justice, you have to submit to authority, God-given authority. But the second part of the second command in the second table, the protection of human life, of course, is also foundational to everything else that society does to protect human life from unjust harm. So this is one I believe that many of us kind of think, well, I don't really have a problem with this one. I don't really hate anyone. I don't really want to kill anyone. I'm probably pretty good on the Sixth Commandment. But this is probably one of the commandments that's most frequently broken. It's one of the commandments that, that wiggles its way into your heart in insidious ways. And that's why we are going to study this commandment tonight. Just because you've never murdered anyone in your life doesn't mean you haven't broken this commandment. Have you ever been angry with a brother, as Jesus said? Have you ever insulted someone? Have you ever said you fool or called someone a name? According to the, Lord, to the Lord, murder can happen in thought and in word, not just in deed. So are you harboring anger in your heart? Are you holding a grudge? It's always helpful to go to the larger catechism. What are the duties required in the Sixth Commandment? It's pretty extensive. As they, as they build on the commandments, the preservation of human life. The duties required in the Sixth Commandment are careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes and subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions and temptations and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of life of any. Also by just defense against violence by patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat and drink, exercise and sleep and labor and recreation. We obey this commandment by charitable thoughts and love and compassion and meekness and gentleness and kindness, peaceable, mild, and courteous speech and behavior, forbearance, putting up with each other, Readiness to be reconciled, patient, bearing, and forgiving of injuries, requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, protecting and defending the innocent. It forbids all sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, all immoderate use, excessive use of eating and drinking, of work and recreation, provoking words, quarreling, striking, wounding, whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. Well, I'll let you look up those proof texts for yourself, and I'm just going to highlight some of them as we break down the Sixth Commandment in thought, word, and deed. First, let's look at the actual deed of murder, or the deed of not preserving the life. 
of ourselves or our neighbors. If the preservation of your life and your neighbor's life is the moral command, how do you actually commit this deed? Well, obviously, actual murder is committing this or breaking this commandment. It's an image bearer, first of all. All image bearers have value because they are bearing the image of God, not the moral image of God, but in other, in other ways, the image of God. The actual murder of an unregenerate person, if you think about this, it puts them forever beyond the pale of salvation. If you kill someone who's unregenerate, they can never have any hope of salvation. They're not breathing any longer. Murder is an affront to God. Secondly, according to Christ, quarreling, unkind arguing is murder. Quarreling with people. Thirdly, menacing, threatening deeds, gestures, looks meant to inspire fear or intimidate interpersonal relationships. You're actually murdering that person by angry looks. Suicide, of course, is a breaking of the commandment. In many ways, overeating is breaking the commandment. You're, you're destroying your own body, eating things that are unhealthy, over-drinking, over-working, over-sleeping, over-recreation. There were some, some young airmen at Lodges, the, the base where we were assigned. Uh, there were some mishaps that were happening on the flight line. Guys were driving, and the speed limit on the flight line is 15 miles an hour at Lodges. Imagine driving 15 miles an hour. They're pulling gas carts and kinds of things like that, driving as slow as possible. And a guy crashes into a wall. It's like, what, what in the world happened? What's wrong with you? He didn't tell me, and I come to find out later that this is a kid who's a gamer. I didn't even know what a gamer was. I literally had no idea. My first sergeant said, he's a gamer, sir. I said, what in the world is that? What, is, what are you talking about? I'm thinking like Monopoly or something. <laughs> like, no, he stays up all night playing games. He gets off work, he doesn't eat, and he stays up all night. And then he drinks a cup of coffee and comes to work. And he'll do this for two or three nights. Well, besides just being stupid... He's breaking the commandment, the sixth commandment. He's destroying his own body by this over-recreation, this undersleep and over-recreation. So there are many ways that we break this command. Again, if you think of the moral principle of preserving your own life and the life of others, the Holy Spirit will work it out in many other ways than I can even talk about here. We need to live healthy as unto the Lord. And we need to preserve the health of others, preserve the lives of others. Certainly, whole countries can break this commandment. Uh, whole establishments can break this commandment. Big Pharma can break this commandment. So many other organizations and lobbyists can break this commandment by causing people to live unhealthy lives. So that's the deeds. There's many, many more, of course. How about in thoughts or feelings? How do you break the sixth commandment? Any attitude of the heart that directs you to anger is breaking the commandment. All of our thoughts need to be directed to love, to loving our neighbor. It seems simple, seems simple concept, but think about it as I begin to peel the onion a little bit. If you are discontent 
in your heart, if you are not content with a situation in your life, it produces some rumbling inside, doesn't it? And this can either be directed at people or God. And either one is breaking this commandment. Whether you're quarreling with God or man, whether you're impatient or angry with God or man, you're breaking the sixth commandment. That's why you strive to be content in Christ. Like Paul, content in every situation. Ambition. I remember when I was a young man, I thought ambition was a positive thing. And certainly there's a, there's a, a way that it can be positive if you're, if you're ambitious to, to do your very best for Christ's glory. Yeah, that's good. But ambition in a worldly sense is the opposite of contentment. It's just wanting more and more and more, wanting something you don't have, seeking more. And it can lead to a heart that opposes God. Envy often destroys life. It's rottenness to the bones. If you're envious of someone else, you're going to have bad thoughts about that other person. Eventually, you're going to have bad thoughts about your situation, about God. Revenge. Desire for revenge. Remember, vengeance belongs to God. The, the southern states had a saying after the devastation of the Civil War, Deo Vendici. It just meant God's going to get justice. He's, he's given whatever justice we have deserved and He's going to get justice on anyone in this world. We don't have to strive after justice. God will get revenge. You give it up to the Lord. Anger, of course. Christ talked about anger. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you and all malice. That's Ephesians 4. What's Paul saying? He's saying don't break the sixth commandment. Hatred is in any form sinful. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, Paul said, and has no eternal life. We're not to hate. We're not to hate anyone. We love. I guess you can hate Satan. Otherwise, we love image bearers, even those who hate us. All bitterness or resentment or rancor, a long-standing bitterness, a stubbornness, to be tender or against tenderness, cooling your actions or manner towards someone, someone else. William Plumer said, where there is no bitterness, there can be holiness. But where there is bitterness, there cannot be holiness. Unmercifulness. Showing no mercy. One of the Beatitudes is that we would be blessed if we're merciful. If you show no mercy, it's the same as hatred. James 2 says, He shall have judgment without mercy who has shown no mercy. To have an unforgiving temper. Holding a grudge. Refusing to forgive. If you refuse to forgive your brother, your heavenly Father will what? Refuse to forgive you. Having contempt for another person a haughtiness, a prideful scorn for someone else, no matter who it is. Well, you look at someone politically you disagree with and you have this, this haughty kind of pride and you just scorn them. Or you've disagreed with someone even in the church family or disagreed with someone in your own family and you have this scorn for them. A prideful scorner is an ungodly man. You have malice towards someone. In other words, you, you're glad when they fail. You're glad when they're in pain. You're glad when they fall. Unkind feelings of any kind toward other men, to sum it up. 
If you have unkind feelings toward anyone else, you're breaking this commandment because we're called to be kind one to another. That's the positive edge of this commandment. Tender-hearted and forgiving one another. Why? Because that's how God has treated us. So that's the standard. The way God has treated you, that's how you're to treat others. And when you don't do this, you're showing ingratitude toward God. The biggest cause for breaking the sixth commandment. Does anyone know it? I've left it till the end. Pride. Just pride. Pride causes all of the other things we've talked about to come into being. Pride brings contention. So those are just our thoughts. When you think of of obeying the sixth commandment, you know how there's, there's so many ways to break it, but when you think of obeying it, you can really just sum it up with love others. Love others as Christ has loved you. Love others as you love yourself. Well, you can also break it in words. You can break the sixth commandment by the words that come out of your mouth, as Christ has said as well. Anytime you're in anger or stirring up anger with your words or you're calling names with your words, that person is so stupid. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Proverbs 15 says, words are like the piercings of a sword. And David, all through the Psalms, talks about words as spears and swords and arrows, wounding and killing. You're breaking the sixth commandment. You're murdering that person with your words. Oh, but I was just kidding. I didn't mean that. It was just a joke. Read Proverbs 26.19. You can't do evil things and say, oh, I was just joking. You're breaking the sixth commandment. It's reflecting something in your heart. What is that? Pride, disdain, scorn. We need to be careful with our words. If you can't say anything kind, then what? Don't say anything at all. It's still true today. I remember this old... We were watching some show about America and they were interviewing various families from different parts of the country and they interviewed this this family that lived in some desolate farm in the middle of Oklahoma. You couldn't see another house for miles. And they were just nice, good, solid people. And... They were asking him, the interviewer was asking about their neighbors. And she's like, I'm sorry, we don't talk about people. That was just a rule of their house. They didn't talk about people. How much better would our world be if we didn't talk about people? False words, menacing words, malicious words, you're breaking the commandment. False testimony that results in the death of someone innocent, you're breaking the commandment, certainly. Enticing others to false testimony that would result in the death of the commandment. Uh, the innocent, yeah, you're breaking the commandment as well. Anytime you're speaking evil of your neighbor, you're highly critical of a neighbor, you're seeking to demean or embarrass your neighbor, you're breaking the commandment. Speaking truth of a neighbor, but with a malicious intent. Well, I just told the truth. Yeah, but what's the intent of it? It's to put that person in his place, to put him down, to show that you're superior. Backbiting, gossip, slander with an intent to harm someone's reputation. Hurtful, insulting discussion. This is all breaking the sixth commandment, don't you see? This is what Jesus is talking about. You're you're not using your words to build this person's up. You're not preserving this person's life with your words. Rather, you're throwing them down and breaking the commandments of God. So we see that we can break these in thoughts, words, and deeds. And again, I had to take 
uh, a massive amount of information and just kind of cut it down to something manageable. There's so much more we could say about the, the Sixth Commandment. Of course, all the commandments. But let's now flip and talk about the attitudes of the heart worked out in the good of our neighbor. This is the fourth point. Good thoughts toward our neighbors. Good words toward our neighbors. Good deeds toward our neighbors. I just want to look at some Scriptures. Romans 13, verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must forgive. This is the positive side of the Sixth Commandment. This is the, the positive side of not murdering. James 3.17 But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, and then peaceable, and then gentle, then open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial and sincere. In the last Scripture, 1 Peter 3, 8-11-11. Finally, all of you have a unity of mind, Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. So he's saying, don't break it, the sixth commandment, negatively, but obey the commandment positively. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil in his lips from speaking lies. Let him turn from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. So it seems to me that there's so many ways that are insidious, that wiggle into your heart, that convince you that you're not breaking this commandment when really you're breaking it multiple times a day, maybe multiple times an hour in your thoughts and maybe even in your words and your deeds. But to obey the commandment is just as simple as loving your neighbor in your thoughts, loving your neighbor in your words. Loving your neighbor and your deeds. And notice that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount ties obeying the Sixth Commandment, not breaking the Sixth Commandment, with forgiveness. Reconciliation. So what's our attitude toward those who wrong us? Well, the only attitude to have is forgive and reconcile. Anger is murder. Anger leads to greater sin. Unforgiveness. But we're called to be tender-hearted and forgiving one another. You say, well, you don't know what this person's done to me. You don't know the great pain and the great loss that I've experienced. You don't know the, the, great, the great suffering that this person brought into my life. Well, I might not know, but I know someone who does know and who's experienced much, much worse. And you know what? As he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He had no excess baggage. When he, when he died, he had nothing holding on to him. Well, you say, well, this person is never going to ask for my forgiveness, so in one sense, I don't have to give it. That's a complete cop-out, Christian. You need to have your heart clear with God all the time. It doesn't matter if that person ever comes to you and asks for forgiveness. You keep your heart clean before the Lord. I'm not saying the reconciliation has happened, 
but at least your heart is open. You've said, Lord, I don't know what's going on here. I forgive this person. And help me to resist all of the anger and the bitterness and just to open my arms in forgiveness whenever I think about it. Please help me to forgive him. Help me to forgive her. And help me to move on. You see, in that way, at least vertically, your heart is clean. Maybe the reconciliation will never happen. Maybe this person's just going to hate you the rest of your life. And that's on them. But your duty is to forgive and to have arms wide open, waiting for reconciliation, if it should ever come. That's the only way to, to live, brothers and sisters. That's the only way to sleep well. Your pillow should hit the bed every night knowing, Lord, I have nothing on my heart against anyone. I just want to love everyone better. Please help me. You should, need, you should forgive and move on quickly, very quickly, especially with your wife, especially with your husband, especially with your own family. Because that's where the hurt is the deepest, isn't it? So show the grace that God has shown you again and again and again. The larger catechism says that we need to carefully study the preservation of our lives and the lives of others. In other words, there are many, many ways that we can break this commandment, and there are many, many ways that we can also keep the commandment. One of the reasons why we must forgive is because we're not permitted to be angry with other people, but we're also not permitted to be angry with God. We're to bear patiently with the hard providences of God and not become angry at Him. Not to think that, that we could ever murder God, but we can have murderous thoughts toward God if we persist in anger against our situation. And James tells us to remain steadfast in the midst of all kinds of situations. He says, you've heard the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job suffered much more than you will in life. And yet the Lord was compassionate and merciful with Job. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So we don't just bear with our struggles. We don't just bear with our tribulations. Whatever God brings you, should bear it quietly and cheerfully. Our larger catechism says as much. This is the opposite of anger. This is part of obeying this commandment. To love ourselves is to love God in the midst of whatever He brings to us. Because the opposite of that is anger. That's why Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings because it produces the fruit of the Spirit. Peter says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. We want a gentle and quiet spirit in the midst. This isn't just for women, for all Christians. Psalm 37 says to forsake wrath, refrain from anger, fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So we need to forgive. This is part and parcel of keeping our hearts clean and free from anger, free from murder. Just forgiving. Forgiving God. Sorry, forgiving others and keeping our hearts pure before God. But we also protect the innocent. That's another way we show good to our neighbor. We protect the innocent. You see these videos maybe of, of people being beat up. Has anyone else seen these? And there's just like a crowd of people standing and watching, all with their phones up. Like, what is going on? There's no effort to protect the person who's being beat up by 20 different 
other people? Or people dying? People literally dying. Someone on fire and there's just cameras everywhere. No one's helping. You see, we actually have a duty to help people who are suffering. We have a duty to protect life. We have a duty to help those who are innocent. Deuteronomy 10 says, verse 17, The Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless, for the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. This is part of doing good to our neighbor, is helping those who are in need. To defend the rights of the poor and needy. Remember in Matthew 25, Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. This is part of loving your neighbor. This is part of preserving the life of your neighbor. This is part of obeying the commandment. It's a positive edge of this commandment. So in all cases, you might be thinking, well, how do I actually pull all this in for life? Well, remember the moral principle, preserving the life of your neighbor, preserving your own life. And then think about Jesus. I mean, in every commandment, just look at Jesus. He's the epitome of what it means to love. Love your neighbor the way Jesus has loved you. Love as Jesus loved. He's the epitome of preservation of life. He raised the dead. He took death upon Himself that you might have life. He He sacrificed Himself for someone else to live. He held no grudge in His heart, even on the cross. He was always ready to be reconciled to any who would come to Him in faith. So His call in Matthew 11.28 is real. When He says, come to Me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest, that's a real call today. He still is calling those who would come to Him. Because His yoke is easy and His burden is light. So He is our example of what it means to keep this commandment to preserve the lives of others, to help others. Let's look at, lastly, some modern implications of this particular commandment. I believe, well, as I was reading through some of the Puritan writings, they, they have whole chapters devoted to dueling. Back in Puritan days, dueling was a thing. You would have a disagreement, and as a man of honor, instead of uh, just beating each other senseless, we would have an organized duel and kill each other civilized. So there were chapters written about how this is breaking the Sixth Commandment. I thought, well, let's pull it forward to the 21st century. First, let's look at abortion. Obviously, you all understand this, but abortion is murder. It's always murder. Well, how about to protect the life of the mother? That's not your call. It's murder. You don't kill innocent life in the womb. Do you realize each year there's 73 million abortions each year worldwide? Can't even imagine. 73 million abortions in a year? 200,000 a day? Children killed? In the United States, 20% of all pregnancies end in abortion, 2 out of 10. It's 2,000 a day, even in the U.S. 
So any thoughts or words that minimize the, the horror of abortion, you're breaking this commandment. Well, my friend, I don't want to offend them. No, tell them. This is murder. It's not a choice. We're knit together in our mother's wombs, and before we were ever born, the Lord knew us. That's a very real application of the Sixth Commandment today. Abortion is murder. We need to be declaring it from the rooftop. Never, ever be satisfied that this is somehow phasing out. It's not. It's happening all over the world. Euthanasia, assisted suicide. It's happening more and more and more. There's this humanistic impulse that says we have the right to determine when we're going to die. It's, it's the noble thing to do. It's a heroic way to end life. I'm in so much pain. It's murder. You can't kill yourself. That's God's business. It's murder. Torture. Torture of any kind is breaking the Sixth Commandment. We don't hurt people for any reason. It doesn't matter what the consequences are. You don't torture people. Total war. War waged upon civilians. Bombing women. Bombing children. Bombing non-combatants. It's murder. Well, we had to drop the bomb on Hiroshima because we had to end the... No. Shut up. It's murder. You don't bomb innocent people. We don't do that. We're Christians. Well, it would have cost another 200,000 lives. Well, that's in God's hands. Soldiers fight soldiers. We don't fight women. We don't fight children. We don't fight the elderly. It's murder. And I'm a military man. I've been trained in this way. It's murder. And even governments that refuse to punish murderers, there's judgment coming. Or governments that support or endorse murder, as in abortion, as in euthanasia, the judgment is coming. So we who think we are righteous before God, we have so much to lament. There's so much injustice. There's so much murder. There's such a lack of goodwill and kindness and love. Where's the church showing love to this dead world? Often we sound just as bad as the people on TV. Grumbling and complaining about this or that. We look to the Scriptures to understand how to love God and how to love our neighbor. Jesus stated in the Sermon on the Mount that not a single dot is going to pass from the law until He comes back, until all is accomplished. So we look to Jesus to know how to please Him in this way, to know how to obey the commandments. And let me just conclude with this. God knows what an injustice is. Jesus knows what an unjust killing is. He understands. The death of Jesus was the most unjust murder of all time in all of history. You realize He was perfect and holy in every way. And you crucified and killed Him at the hands of lawless men. Pilate said, I find no guilt in Him. In John 18.38, in Luke 23, verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. Indeed, there was no guilt in this man. He was tempted in every way as we are, and he did not sin. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. 
the perfect Holy One was murdered by lawless men. And it was an unjust killing. But there's more to the story. Indeed, there always is. It was also the most just killing that had ever taken place. The most just killing in human history. Because God made Him to be sin for us who had no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Indeed, the crucifixion of Christ is the righteous judgment of God. Romans 3.21 says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who who God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. In other words, He took the wrath that we deserved. He made justice for us. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins He'd saved up former sins and put them on Christ. There wasn't a single sin for God's elect that Christ did not pay for. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So as we look at the Sixth Commandment and we look at all the requirements of the commandment and all the ways that we can break the commandment and all the ways that we should obey the commandment, We need to look at Jesus. Brothers and sisters, look at Jesus. He's experienced both sides of this commandment. He's experienced the injustice of those who would break the commandment upon His back. And He's experienced the the positive aspects of the commandment as He loved those and took the, the wrath upon Himself for those who deserve to die. So because you have the Holy Spirit, let the Holy Spirit work through your own hearts as you begin to love others and to love your neighbor as yourself. Let us pray. Thank You, Father in Heaven. Thank You so much for Your mercy and Your grace, Your goodness, Your love and kindness. Thank You that You have come down from Heaven to show us the Father. Thank You that we have a knowledge of You in the Word of God, that Your Holy Spirit inspires us to true obedience. Lord, we want to please You. Lord, we want to know more than just what a commandment says and means, but we want to actually apply this in a way that pleases You. And this is impossible without Your Spirit. So please help us. Father in Heaven, help us. Holy Spirit, help us. Apart from You, we can do nothing. But with You, all things are possible. So help us to love You and to love our neighbor. In Jesus' name, Amen. Would you please stand?